Well, I'm glad that you're here in worship with us this morning, and happy Advent. I hope this will be a memorable and uh, warm time for you and your family. Um, We are going into a new series for the Advent season and a little bit beyond, and we're looking at a series of psalms, what we're calling the Songs of Hope. And this is our fifth lesson. This is Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, it is indeed an unusual thing that we do this morning. We come and confess our failures openly. We sing songs together. We listen to and expound an ancient text, asking that you would speak through it to our very modern lives and modern problems. It's very unique. It's very bold. It's very a very presumptive exercise. But it's what your followers have done for thousands of years in hope, in belief, and in experiencing you, that you do, in fact, show up as your people gather for worship, that you do in fact speak, that you do in fact step into our real lives. Not all of us, of course, are your followers here this morning, but if those of us who are are honest, even us Christians are full of contradiction. We're often confused. We have moments of confidence mixed with moments of doubt. We all need to hear from you this morning maybe for the first time to understand the story of the gospel, others of us need to remember. We've forgotten who you are. We've forgotten who we are. Lord, would you help us to remember? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been around in town for very long, you're likely to conclude that, man, they talk about the gospel a lot. Well, at least I hope that's what your conclusion is. And you should be wary of anyone who tells you that they have the the key to life. But I'm going to say that, that we have found that the gospel is the key to everything in the Christian life, the key to dealing with the problems of life, the key to opening up and understanding and interpreting the Bible itself, that the gospel is not just the starting place, but it's the staying place of the Christian journey. It's not that you go into Christianity with the gospel and then you go up into maturity with something else, but that the gospel is both. It's the key 
to both. And praying the gospel is not only the gateway in, but it's the way through and it's the way up. As we begin this series of Psalms, it's appropriate that we start with 103 because it deals specifically over and over with the nature of the gospel. It's about remembering the gospel. We're gonna look at just two things, what we need to remember and how we need to remember. Now, there was a man from a city who was visiting his brother out in the country, and his brother was a farmer who was very forgetful. And the farmer had a herd of cattle and a very smart border collie who helped him put the cattle in each and every night. And at night, the dog would very dutifully report for duty, and he would herd all the cattle into the pen and then close the latch on the pen door with his paw. And the brother visiting from the city was amazed at this, amazed at how smart this border collie was, amazed at how good his memory was, that he came out and did it each and every night. And he said, wow, that's some dog. What's her name? The forgetful farmer thought for a minute, and then he asked, what do you call that red flower that smells good and has thorns on its stem? A rose? Yeah, that's it. And he turns to his wife and says, hey, Rose, what do we call this dog? The fact that something is important doesn't guarantee that we'll remember it. Sometimes we forget the most important things. And forgetting and remembering, however, in English is very different than how it is and what it means and what it conveys in Hebrew and in the Bible. For David, when he says, remember, when he says, don't forget, it's more than just mental recall. It's more than just David counting his blessings. It's a way of realigning one's life. It's a way of reassessing one's circumstances in view of who God is and how he's acted in their story. In Psalm 103, David is demanding of himself not to forget the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Maybe you're wary of people who walk around talking to themselves, but that's exactly what David is doing here. He's saying, self, soul, don't forget what God is really like. Self, remember the news of God's mercy. Remember the story of God's redemption. And that's one thing that's very unique about Christianity is that as a religion, it's not a series of ethical insights. It's not a set of principles, it's not a method of spirituality, but it's a story. It's a story of how God creates the world, how he begins history, how he enters into history, how he enters into people's real lives with real mercy. The way that the Bible calls people to respond to God, to know God over and over is by telling a story and then reminding them of it over and over and over and saying, don't forget the story. Don't forget that if you're a Christian, this is your story. God's acting in history is the reason, gives us a reason to trust him. There's a story of redemption that David would have each of us remember. In verse six and seven, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses his deeds to the people of Israel. 
What are the ways that he's talking about? What are the deeds that he is referring to? It's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of how God rescues his people out of Egypt and promises them a land of plenty. But here's what I want you to do, Israel. I want you to follow me. I want you to love me with your whole heart. I want you to give the blessings that I give to you to all nations everywhere. I want to bless you in order to be a blessing. And these rules that God gives to them, that he gives to Moses to give to them, are not to keep them from having any fun, but they're the reason, they're the outline of life itself. It points them outward. It points them to where true life is to be found. Now, if you remember this Exodus story, Moses meets with God. He goes up on Mount Sinai, and he receives the tablets of the law, and Israel is down waiting for him to come down. And it takes them a little bit too long, and they get impatient. And you heard about the way that they were in Nehemiah. This was later, but they became stiff-necked, and they became rebellious, and they began to look around for other things to worship. And what do they do? When, when Moses comes down, he finds the Israelites having a big party, and they're worshiping a golden calf. They've turned God into an image. The real God in all of his majesty and mystery and his fiery revelations scares them to death. And what they do is they make him, they begin to diminish him, they miniaturize him, they manage him by making him into a golden calf. And Moses comes down and sees this and he's indignant. Are you kidding me? This is the the God that rescued you out of Egypt? No, you've missed the point. He throws the tablets down in anger, but he goes up to the mountain another time and he prays for the people. He prays for Israel. He asks God to forgive them once again. And God starts to speak. And he passed in front of Moses. This is Exodus 34, proclaiming The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, or what likely means thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now listen to our psalm, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. It's almost an exact quote of the Exodus passage. David is recalling in his prayer life and his personal worship, which then becomes a psalm of corporate worship, he is rehearsing the story. He is reminding himself of what God has done. Why can God be trustworthy? Because look at what he has done in Israel's story. Look at what he has done in the Exodus. Now, it's commonsensical. How do you get to know someone? You get to know how they act. You become accustomed with how they respond to pressure. How do they deal with their possessions? How do they handle adversity? How do they they interact with you? That's how you come to know someone. And some of us call our moms for advice. Some of us call our dads for advice or a teacher or a mentor when we need advice because we have experienced their counsel being wise, being trustworthy. We have a life experience with them that says this person is worthy of trust. This person is worthy of investing time to find out what they think about a particular situation. And with God, 
It's exactly the same way because he is a person who relates to you, who has a relationship or wants a relationship with you. And the Bible constantly points us back to God's actions. Do you want to know God? Do you want to mature in the Christian faith? You have to understand how he has worked in history. You have to consistently revisit the story. You have to understand the story as being your story. That if you are a Christian, you are a rescued one. You are a redeemed one. You have been bought and brought out of slavery. And what does Jesus do when he comes on the scene and he talks about himself, he talks about his mission? He does it, he does it in exactly the same way. He picks up on the imagery from the Exodus. In Luke 9, this part we didn't look at in our study of the Gospel of Luke, but Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's one of the stranger parts of the New Testament. And commentators debate what's going on exactly. But what we know is that Jesus' appearance somehow changes. He begins to demonstrate the radiance of God in a very visible way, that even his disciples see him changing in appearance in some way. And he has a conversation with Elijah and Moses, two prophets who are long dead. And he's talking to them as if they are still alive in some way. And what do they talk about? It says they talked about his departure. But the underlying word here is exodus. They began to talk about Jesus' coming exodus. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to investigate Christianity? Do you want to learn to to live the story, read the story of redemption, that God rescues his people from toil and bondage in Egypt, but that there is an even greater bondage that Exodus foreshadows, that Jesus is the fuller, final Moses, that he's rescuing his people not from a political slavery, but from the bondage of sin itself, that he is leading his people out from everything that enslaves them. That's what we need to remember. What we need to remember is that at the center of the universe is a heart of grace. At the center of the universe is an offer of rescue, an offer of redemption. At the center of the universe, there's a God who acts compassionately and decisively on behalf of his people. That's what we need to remember. But how? How do we remember that in the biblical sense, in the Hebrew sense? How do we not forget what we need to remember? Have you ever said to yourself, I'm sure that you have, I will never do that again. I'll never do whatever the behavior was. I'll never do make whatever the decision was. I'll never do that again. It's so obvious to you in that moment that a choice, decision, behavior that you've made or done was so clearly wrong that you vow to yourself, I'll never do it again. And that commitment is vivid. It's at the very center of your consciousness, and nothing makes more sense right now than to never do that again. But then as you move away from that incident, as there's distance in time from that particular behavior, maybe you become a little less convinced. You begin to rationalize your behavior and say, there's a part of me that really hates what I did, but then that really hates that choice and behavior, but there's a part of me that is kind of willing to negotiate that maybe I'll do it again. Why is this? Why do we act that way? Why do we think that way? Why do we change maybe in an hour or in months 
the vivid commitment that we made to never do that ever again. And of course, there's a complex physiological reason for that. But the more simple reason is that the memory that we have of that behavior, that incident, that decision is no longer a controlling image. It's still present. You still know of it somehow. You still remember it in some way, but it's not central. It's not vivid. It's not controlling. You can remember, but it's not controlling your decision anymore. And many of us drive ourselves crazy with this sort of cycle. And if it's just a series of social faux pas, then it's embarrassing. But if it's something that's a controlling thing in your life, an addiction perhaps, it can be maddening. But either way, we surprise ourselves by our own behavior. There's some sort of dislocation of the soul that lies very deep within us that makes us act in ways that we can't understand, that we surprise ourselves, that we somehow look back and say, well, that's not me. I said I would never do that again, and now I find myself doing that very thing. Why does this happen? Why does this cycle take place? And I'm sure that you've experienced it. I'm sure it's not just me up here that's experienced that before. What we need to see is that sin is not just breaking the rules, but sin is an infection. Sin is something that has changed the whole world. It has changed our personality and that we live now in a very crooked world and that our hearts and even our memories are affected by sin. Now, I know that's an outmoded term, and it's a term that many of us wrestle with, but think with me for a moment. If the world that we live in, if in the world that we live in, that good and evil are just abstractions, then why is it that those things that went well for you in life, those positive things that someone said about you, the recognition of an achievement seem to be so ephemeral, so forgetful, so light? while the names that you were called in middle school haunt you to this day, while the lack of closeness that you may have felt with a particular parent or both of them seems to infect every relationship that you have now, even 30 years later. In other words, the 100 times where someone tells you you're great, why does it not compete with the one time where people make fun of you and tell you you're nothing? The Bible is telling us, this passage is telling us is that there's something wrong with our heart. There's something wrong with our memory. That the things that should be most central and compelling and directive need constant attention and constant remembering. And the things that should bounce off, fall away, be forgotten in an instant need constant vigilance to forget. The passage is telling us that our deepest problems are not behavioral, but it's that we've forgotten who we are, that we're living by the wrong story. When sin begins to infect our hearts, we want to be our own masters. We want to control the narrative. We want to write our own story and control our destiny. And when someone says something that reinforces that way of thinking, that way of living into the world, it's kind of like a nice thank you note that you quickly discard. But when anything or any person comes in to threaten that narrative, to threaten or challenge the way that you're living, you fixate upon it. It eats you from the inside out because the very reason for your being 
is challenged and it's at stake and you must defend it at all costs. And what David is saying, what he's modeling for you and for I is that you must pray the truth into your hearts over and over. You must argue with yourself. That's what David is doing. You see, David's not giving expression to his inner person. He's arguing with it. He's not finding his inner self. He's demanding that it change. He knows that self is the problem, and he's talking to himself, not just listening to himself. He's trying to change the controlling narrative. He's trying to change the controlling memory that guides his life. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. He's talking to himself. He's coaching himself. He's praying this memory into vividness so that it would be the controlling thing that he remembers. What does he pray? He prays the memory of God's actions. He prays the memory of who God is, his character. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. They're infinitely gone. They're unconditionally gone. They are never to appear, never to be remembered again in the mind of God. It's very powerful, but it's a proposition. It's something someone is telling you. And our minds don't remember, our minds remember propositions pretty well, but they're only so helpful to our hearts when we're facing the loss of a loved one, when we're dealing with doubt, when we're dealing with disillusionment, when we're in the last month of our unemployment, when we're tempted to just chuck the faith and walk away. We have to not only remember the propositions, but we have to actually engage in another story. We have to begin to live it again. Do you remember the story of Peter Pan? The one I remember is from Steven Spielberg's movie uh, Hook from the early 90s. But Peter Pan grows up in Neverland, but then he leaves. And in Neverland, he was a boy. But as he leaves Neverland, he grows up and becomes this mergers and acquisitions person. He forgets who he was. Peter Pan becomes Peter Banning, at least in the movie. And he goes back to London and he visits this orphanage. They're having a celebration for the orphanage that Wendy Darling had opened and had invited Peter into. And what's happened is that Captain Cook has come in and he's taken Peter's children children. He's trying to bring Peter out, to bring Peter back into the fight, to bring Peter back into the story. And Peter just thinks they've disappeared. Someone has taken them, certainly not Captain Hook on a big boat. Wendy Darling says to Peter, Peter, the stories are true. I swear to you. I swear on everything I adore. And now he's come back to seek his revenge. The fight isn't over for Captain James Hook. He wants you back. He knows that you'll follow Jack and Maggie to the ends of the earth and beyond. And by heaven, you must find a way. Only you can save your children. Somehow, you must go back. You must make yourself remember. Peter says, remember what? And Wendy says, Peter, do you not know who you are? Later, 
he's on the boat with Captain Hook, and Hook looks at him and says, you know you're not really Peter Pan, don't you? This is only a dream. When you wake up, you'll just be Peter Banning, a cold, selfish man who drinks too much, is obsessed with success, and runs and hides from his wife and children. At another time, Tinkerbell gives him a plate of imaginary food and tells him, Peter, eat this food. And Peter says, what's the deal? Where's the the real food? Gandhi ate more than this. And Tinkerbell says, if you can't imagine yourself being Peter Pan, you won't be Peter Pan. So eat up. What's going on? Two narratives are vying for control of Peter's life. One where he's self-obsessed, where he's pursuing the narrative of success, where he's running from his loved ones, and the other one where he is willing to risk everything, where he's willing to submit his own dreams, his own desires, his own agenda for the good of others, where he fights for what is good, and he only remembers. He only remembers when he chooses to stop long enough to listen. He only changes when, when he begins to actually live as Peter Pan. He makes the decision, he goes to live with the lost boys. He begins to live as Peter Pan and he's transformed into Peter Pan. He begins to remember. His memory changes. J.M. Barry or Steven Spielberg, because I'm not sure how well the stories link up, know something about the human soul. They know something about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be transformed, what it means to know someone is that the only way you know someone is not by reading about them in a book, but you get to know them, you relate to them, you experience how they relate to you in real life. And that's what God is offering. That's what David is trying to coach himself and remind himself about. The only way that you're transformed, the only way that you change It's not by simply learning about the propositions, but that you take the propositions, you take the promises, you take what it says about God, and you put it into action. That's how you remember. That's how you live the story. That's how you make sure that you're living the right story. David stops long enough to really listen, to try and remind himself who he really is. He puts himself in the story. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. When David stops to remember, the plot thickens. The story changes because now it includes him. He's remembering again. He's remembering who he is. He puts himself into the story. And he remembers that God is not gracious in the abstract. It's not just a proposition. It's not just a truth that's out there but God is gracious towards him. God has been gracious in real life, in the real history of Israel. He's quoting Exodus 34, but what does Exodus say? It says the same thing, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, but Exodus goes on and says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. That sounds like everyone's going to get what they deserve. That if you mess it up, you mess it up not just for you, but for four generations after you. That what's at the center of the universe is quid pro quo. 
that if you mess it up, you're in trouble and your children are in trouble. But David doesn't say that. He doesn't include that part. Didn't he know the scriptures? Didn't he know what Moses had to say? Of course he did. Of course he did. He does this deliberately. He's thickening the plot. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat me as my sins deserve. And of course, I'm taking the corporate pronoun and making it personal for him and what each of us need to say and know. He does not treat me as my sins deserve or repay, repay me according to my iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for me. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions for me. This is a corporate song designed for corporate worship, but you have to place yourself in it first. It has to become your story. It has to become your memory. You have to jump into the story and say, wow, he's talking about me. It's not abstract any longer. It's not just a proposition, but it's something that you have chosen to believe. It's something that you've cho- it's a story that you've chosen to jump into, that he will not make you pay for what you deserve, but he takes what you deserve on himself. Andrew Lloyd Webber, of course, the great composer of um, Broadway musicals, wrote the Jesus Christ Superstar. And there's a scene in there where uh, Jesus' famous uh, statement on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Christianity for centuries is interpreted as the, the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus on the cross to be, to be payment for any that would align themselves anyone, anyone that would choose to confess their sins and trust in that moment that what they deserve is then put on Jesus instead of them. And so Jesus is crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Weber, when he writes this updated version, Jesus Christ Superstar, he changes the term. And many of the now modern uh, Uh, translations have done the same thing. He updates the forsaken. He makes it colloquial, and it's very significant. Instead of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Isn't that the worst of human destiny? Isn't that the worst thing that you can imagine to be forgotten, really forgotten, Jesus was forgotten on the cross so that you can be remembered. He was forgotten by his father, forsaken by his father, so that you can, oper- you can occupy the very center of God's consciousness. He was forgotten so that your sin will be forgotten. That's the prayer of the gospel. That's what David is rehearsing here. He's rehearsing it in private prayer language that then breaks into corporate prayer language. That's the prayer of the gospel, that it might be true, that you, if you are in Christ, occupy the very center of God's affections. And because Jesus was forgotten on your behalf, your sins are forever, forever forgotten. Let's pray. Father, as we come into the season of Advent, 
Lord, it is a time of, of celebration. It's also a time of solemnity that it took your son taking on flesh to pay for the penalty of our sin, to win the victory over the way that, the sin, that sin has infected and made our world crooked, that he has come to make it straight again, to change who we are at the very center of who we are, not just our behavior, not just to give us a list of rules to follow, but to make us new. I pray that as we go through this season of Advent as this, and this series of Psalms, that you would make us new, make us new as individuals, make us new as a church, that we would remember our story, that we would remember who we are. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.